Welcome to the Danny Goldberg Rock and Rolls Hour. In this podcast, Danny shares his longtime connection to the path of the heart, as well as his very engaged life of social activism. If you are interested in supporting Danny's podcast, please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Danny. Hi, this is Danny Goldberg. This is Rock and Rolls, and uh, it's a return to Rock and Rolls of David Silver. And today we're going to talk at my request about the year 1967, almost 50 years ago today. Wow. It will be 50 years in uh, nine months. And I've been fascinated by a series of 50-year anniversaries of milestones in the 60s. And I really have been thinking a lot about 1967 because to me that was the last year where the hippie idea was peaked. It was the summer of love and it was sort of the end of the hippies in many ways because of the huge media influx that came as a result of the summer of love. It's the year that Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band came out. It's the year that Muhammad Ali refused to be drafted into the war in Vietnam. It's the year of the mobilization march in Washington, where uh, a young hippie girl put a flower inside the musket of a National Guardsman. It's the year of the first album of Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, The Grateful Dead, Doors, and many others. And a lot else happened then, too. But David, you were in Cambridge a lot, or you were teaching in the yeah. Boston area at Tufts. And, yeah, it was and one of the... less history about the Boston area, but it was a key... Yeah energy point in the hippie idea, and I'd love to hear what you were doing in 1967. Well, you know, Cambridge was like Berkeley and, and New York and, and San Francisco. Uh, you know, it was a center because there were 260,000 students there. Mm. The vast majority were against the war. And um, I was teaching at Tufts College uh, Literature, and I was doing a television show, which was a countercultural show called What's Happening, Mr. Silver. And so I was immersed in it because I was a bit of a local celebrity. So I was invited to everything. So I met Howard Zinn and I met all these people and traveled with Eugene McCarthy. And it was really quite fabulous. But what I remember, apart from myself, was the teeming, you know, sort of constant presence of protest and of and, you know, not just a protest but of really special seminars and lectures and gatherings at places like MIT and Harvard of, of really forward-looking people who were talking about the ecology, they were talking about uh, media, they were talking about the war. So it wasn't all about the war, but it was a great place to be. And it seemed like it was exciting, you know, Danny. I mean, I have to admit this, that there was a certain... Uh, people have said this before, it's not new, but there's a certain excitement about going into the streets. Uh, you know, because there they are. They're a place you walk down and shop and, 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 you know, have a cup of coffee. When you suddenly take it upon yourself to stand in lines of people with cops standing 12 feet away from you with tear gas guns, it really gets the blood running. And to some extent, I have to say that I enjoyed it, even though it was dire, you know. Were you ever arrested? No, but I once had a, a, a camera, a very special first camera called a Sony Trinicon, which is the very first portable video camera ever. Somebody lent it to me, and uh, a plainclothes detective came up to me on the street when I was shooting and took it from me and smashed it on the ground. And I had to really, I, I was absolutely freaked out because the person who lent it to me lent it to me saying, please don't 
break this because there aren't any others. So that was a moment, you know, when they really didn't want you to film what they were doing. God, how opposite is that to now where everybody's got a phone that films? So, yeah, I wasn't arrested. So I remember you posted on the Love Serve Remember website once a conversation that took place in the 80s between Allen Ginsberg and Ramdas. And Ramdas was talking about the impurities of the 60s that helped create the polarization that brought on some of the reaction, the right wing, the lack of some of the utopian dreams that so many of us had then. What do you think he meant by that? Well, I think he meant two things. One was the, the you know, sort of anger that he just could not live with, that it just didn't represent a peaceful approach. And therefore, it was kind of a, a parallel to the anger of the of the right wing. And he didn't buy that. And, and he has never bought that. And people have begun to see his point after all these years, that anger breeds anger. Uh, I also think that he was disappointed with what he and, and Dr. Leary saw as being a, a liberating psychedelic revolution into a, a, a pretty dark scene, you know, that ended much later than 67. I mean, 69, we think of as the ultimate horror right. show. Yes. And all of that. And Charles Manson, knowing that Charles Manson had long hair and looked like a hippie and had a commune. Yeah, Charles Manson moved to Haight-Ashbury in March of 1967 after he got out of jail. Really? So, yes, that's, that's uh, specifically with the goal of doing what he did to find... Uh, impressionable teenagers uh, and masquerade as a, as a hippie messiah. I think you've talked about it a lot, at least in, in conversation with me and, and others. Another thing that Ramdas, I think, really was very conscious of was that the homogenization of, of the movement, if you like. You know, I mean, you had shows like Laugh-In on television that were sort of thought of as being hip, but they had nothing to do, absolutely nothing to do with what was going on. And, you know, for me, it was just really a marvelous fusion of what was coming from England and, and the West Coast. So the Beatles and the dead in the airplane uh, were all part of the same movement through, you know. When I see pictures of Brian Jones uh, at um, Monterey, the Monterey Pop Festival and so on. Yeah, Monterey uh, Pop also took place in 67. And did it? Oh, I, I thought it was later. Really? Oh, no, okay. It's 1967. It's May of 67. It's just before the summer of love. It's where both, uh, it's where Jimi Hendrix became a star. Right. It's what made him in America. He was not known here before that. It's what made Janis Joplin a star. It's where she gets signed to Columbia Records. It's where Otis Redding and and uh, finds a white audience for the first time. It's where Ravi Shankar really finds a rock audience for the first time. And it was um, uh, it, one of the fascinating things about reading the history is for. You know, as a kid, I graduated from high school in 67. This counterculture thing seemed to me like one coherent thing. I thought there was this club that included Bob Dylan, the Beatles, the San Francisco people, Tim Leary, the protesters, Muhammad Ali and Dr. King all together. But in fact, there were a lot of factions. And the L.A. musicians were very suspicious of the San Francisco musicians who they thought weren't as good musically. And the San Francisco musicians thought the L.A. people were plastic and inauthentic and phony. And uh, were very hard to persuade to get them to show up at Monterey. Somehow John Phillips uh, promised it would be a benefit and uh, Lou Adler and talked and talk them into it. Um, another one of the tensions was between the hippies, the psychedelic driven, spiritually driven hippies and the angry radicals. 
And um, I also think a lot about, I know you're a fan of Trump Garimpache and, and, and he coined the phrase spiritual materialism. And certainly there was sort of a lot of hipper than now, almost boastfulness among a lot of people who had taken acid, who kind of had this superiority against non-hip people, against people who weren't heads. And it doesn't seem to me in the cosmic scheme of things, that's the way to a coherent, loving world either. Um, how, how did, how, what was, what, in your memory, do you have memory of things that, that you, where you can look back and, and wish things had been done a little differently in your microcosm of the 60s? Yeah, uh, yeah. Polarization, which we know about more than anything nowadays, too. But th there was, uh, you know, a contempt. You just, you nailed it. There was a contempt from the so-called hipsters or hippies, you know, hipsters became hippies, as it were, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, for everything straight. I was one of them. I was like that, too. Me too. You, know, if someone, you know, if someone didn't like the Stones, forget about it. Would not talk to them. If someone didn't understand, you know, the meaning of revolver and, and the Beatles' more psychedelic moments... I just thought they were, you know, what? who are these people? How could they not be turned on by this? How could they not be interested at least, you know? It was much later when I realized that many, many people, some of whom I know now, didn't take drugs, weren't captivated by, you know, uh, third-generation rock and roll. They were just simply, you know, people living a life and didn't particularly want to get into that, but they were just as reviled by, you know, the lies that came out of, out of the White House in 66, 67, 68, and, and, and just didn't act it out the same way. So I think that polarization was on both sides. I, you know, yes, you know, the cops called us in Cambridge. I don't know what they did in New York, but in, in Cambridge, they just called us maggots to our faces. They'd say, hi, maggot, you know, when they'd see us and, and maybe spit on us and things. It wasn't pleasant. But on the other hand, you know, we called them pigs. They weren't all pigs, you know. So that polarization started very quickly. And I must say that, um, you know, if people were smoking marijuana mainly, it wasn't part of the ethos. Because marijuana sort of mellowed people out and made them understand that we were all children of God, as it were. But it was when the more lethal DMT and meth came in. And there was a lot of meth crystals in Cambridge. That did not start in the 21st century. No, well, there was in the Bay Area. That was my downfall. You know, I went to uh, Berkeley in August of 67. I got into the college there. I immediately started just doing drugs and never went to classes. And originally, acid was my thing. And I loved how I'd taken acid in high school. And I really thought that if everybody in the world took acid, there'd be peace in the world. And that if everyone in the world took acid, there'd be harmony and justice and kindness in the world. I actually believe that. And I, I think it's worth reflecting at some point on why that didn't happen. But the criminalization of LSD, which only starts really at the end of 1966 is when it becomes illegal in, uh, in California. And California being the biggest state, it set the tone for the country, turned over the dissemination of LSD to criminals. Once it's criminalized, criminals control it. It's like what mm -hmm. happened during Prohibition where Al Capone and everybody controls whiskey. And um, once dope dealers were in control of it, instead of uh, research scientists uh, or uh, psychiatrists or spiritual people, um, it became conflated with other illegal drugs. And, and somehow going from LSD to heroin and meth seemed as, as natural as walking down a flight of stairs. 
And, and boy, what a difference. I mean, speed kills became a big mantra in yeah. the San Francisco rock area because they saw how it was destroying people. And of course, heroin was the downfall of so many people. And, but, you know, by the early 70s, many of the great rock singers, Jimi Hendrix, Jim Morrison, and Janis Joplin, most famously, were dead, either directly or indirectly from, from, from uh, drug abuse. But how do you think in retrospect, how do we go from acid to meth? I mean, acid was about loving everybody and oneness and connectivity. And amphetamines are so much about ego. Uh, not And by the way, I had a meth problem. I'm grateful that I was able to end it in my teens and it didn't follow me for the rest of my life. So I'm not putting anyone down. I did it. I shot it. But quite a different impetus than, you know, uh, reading the Tibetan Book of the Dead and, and taking a trip. And yet it just seemed to happen so so naturally. What, 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 how- it's a really good question. You know, I mean, I think that hedonism or hedonism, I guess it's pronounced, yeah. you know, took over. The people got bored of of nirvana. I know that sounds really crazy, but, you know, they were taking acid and doing TM, and then a few people would go, yeah, but, you know, I'd really like to have that feeling, you know. I'd like to, you know, I'd like to have that feeling of, of that edgy feeling of meth and cocaine, which was around then, or the tremendous, you know, f- faux, faux bliss of heroin, and then the adventurism of DMT and and all and STP and all these drugs that were really dangerous and powerful, and I wasn't big on them. But a couple of times I took them by mistake. Someone, you know, someone sort of put it in a joint or something, yeah. and suddenly I was flying, and I didn't enjoy it at all because I lost control, and I never wanted to totally lose control. You know, so I think there was a and and also you're right, Danny. The criminalization of it, at least in Cambridge, there were people at those be-ins that occurred on the Cambridge Common. Uh, that were very suspect, you know, they sort of looked like us and they, they acted like us a little bit, but they were basically there to sell drugs. Yeah. And, and, and that, I think you hit it. I think that as soon as you get that, that sort of sector, uh, they can prey upon people. And there was a naivete about it, you know, um, I mean, and yet I want to I want to sort of counter that because it's sort of normally thought of that there was a direct line or dynamic or trajectory from you know the love part of it to the to the dark part of it. It wasn't like that. Life was still life. You know, you still got up in the morning. You still got married, had children. You still went to the supermarket for some milk. You know, you did all those things. It's just that there was a more there was a wonderful feeling of community sometimes from people you did not know. You know, not just your family or your close friends, but you're on the common there on a Sunday afternoon with 1,500, 2,000 people. Everybody's listening to terrific music because the music was peaking at that time. Sergeant Pepper in the summer of that year and so on. You had that feeling of connection that I don't think has ever been reproduced until now. I mean, I, I, you I know. agree with you. The thing I have most nostalgic for was the sense for that brief period of time while the symbol still mattered, while long hair still mattered and a certain language, kind of hip argot still mattered before it had been trivialized by sort of television and advertising and cartoons, that you could recognize a kindred spirit kind of anywhere in America and and trust them, you know, and you just would would stay at some, you know, invite someone to stay in your place just because of kind of what they seemed like and looked like and and Woodstock was the apotheosis of that but 
But I, 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 I love that. Just now, another strand <clears throat> that happens this same year is to jump forward in 1967, in 67, in August, is when we first hear, those of us who are rock fans, anybody who was a rock fan loved the Beatles. They were the most popular group in the world. And the Beatles visited the Maharishi in Wales in August of 67. Sometime before that, uh, a couple of them had talked about him. And suddenly this word meditation was pop. I mean, it had been meditation for centuries and centuries and centuries, but it was the mm. province of people in religious orders or um, Zen teaching or corners of academia. And suddenly it was in the tabloids and on the front pages and talked about in Life magazine and on television and part of the popular conversation. Do you remember when that flip first happened and, and how you reacted to it? Yeah, I do. Because, you know, I was as influenced by anybody, uh, by the Beatles. And when they went to Rishikesh and met with, with the Maharishi, uh, the director and producer of my television show, Fred Barzik, said, as soon as he comes to America, we've got to grab him. So he came to Logan Airport in Boston and we sent out a film crew and I interviewed him and was initiated by him, actually. And I remember friends of mine either were saying, you've lost it. David, you've lost it. Uh, this is, you know, this is, this is really weird what you're doing. Or uh, they went to TM sessions at the, um, I think it's called the Commodore Hotel in Harvard Square. And we all sat together and meditated. And it was really important to all of us because we didn't know anything about that. And so, yeah, a certain segment, that was the start of the road, the Dharma, if you like. And certainly knowing that Ramdas and Leary were in Cambridge, uh, right next to you. I mean, I remember going to a debate that Leary had uh, about the right, right or wrongfulness of, of, of advocating any kind of psychedelic uh, adventure. Uh, and I was just mind blown. And I stayed. It was in, That was in 67. And I stayed afterwards. Never forget it because Tim Leary uh, at that time was still wearing a three-piece, beautifully tailored Prince of Wales suit and a tie and shiny shoes and looked incredible because he was incredibly charismatic. But what was coming out of his mouth was, you know, the precursor of a lot of what Ramdas later would, 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 you know, expand upon and deepen in every way. So how exciting was that? Well, uh, by the end of 67, Ramdas has gone to India. And it's 68, I think, when he comes back and talks about who he, his guru he called Maharaji. So there was some sort of a split starting to happen uh, by by 67 and uh, I just uh, that whole thing about acid I remember there's a quote in the Oracle the great psychedelic um, magazine that was in San Francisco in 67 and 68 where he talked about the problem of coming down the then Richard Alpert talked about the problem right. of, of coming down and um, you know, it was only when I first heard him do the lectures later that became the basis of Be Here Now that emerges in 1970 that I had a sort of a rational comprehension of that. But on the, I think unconsciously, obviously, we all noticed that you would come down. You would you yeah. just the whole world would be love. I would just love everybody. I would just see the love in a chair. I'd see I just feel the love in any color. Uh, I'd look at a strawberry and it seemed connected to the universe. Uh, all You Need Is Love came out that Summer. Oh, I want, can I talk about that for a minute? Because I had a personal experience with that, yeah. a very personal experience with it. 
that, yeah, on, 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 I, on, on the thing that you gave me here, this chronology thing, on June 25th was a show on television. It was the very first satellite show called Our World. And I, believe it or not, was the person who represented the United States of America. No the, way. Yes, yes. So uh, cool. Uh, so there were people from all over Europe, basically, and the United States. But the United States was represented by me and a guy called Alan Capra, who, who invented something called Happenings. And Alan and I did a happening together live across the planet. But the one thing about the show that was amazing was that none of us were told what was going to come out after us. You know, we knew before because we needed the cue, but after we were done. So we didn't know what would be the next thing. And the next thing was coming from all we were told was it's coming out of London. So we finished our bit at deviation Boston. And we were looking at, I was in the control room, I remember. And I thought, what is it? What are the English going to do? Something stupid, you know? And then all I heard was da, 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 da. And then John Lennon launching wow. into All You Need Is Love. And we were flabbergasted in the, in the control room. First of all, we were completely, our egos were really, you know, massively enhanced by the fact that the thing that came after us was The Beatles live. And watching Keith Richards and Mick Jagger in the audience and all the people tromping around with the signs and McCartney and Lennon and the rest of them doing that amazing song. And so, you know, I felt so connected to the Beatles for the first time in my life, apart from being a huge fan, you know. The point I'd rather make rather than just sort of an ego story is that the mass media at that time, at least in the record business, uh, not on television, didn't represent it, but radio and records represented the revolution of the deepest kind, which I don't think has happened that much since. I mean, in other words, there were the Beatles on the first satellite show, which I am to be a part of serendipitously, and that galvanized me tremendously because I thought, oh, my God, all you need is love. All you need is the simplest thing ever said. I mean, how could somebody not have said that before? All you need is love. Give peace a chance. These are simple statements that John made up yeah. and changed the world. And I cannot even begin to emphasize to people listening to this how much that, that meant to me, more than any marijuana joint, more than anything. Mm. The fact that the Beatles were singing All You Need Is Love and at the same time, very soon afterwards, singing Revolution and saying, you know, if you've got, if you're, you know, you've got minds that hate, you can count me out, yeah, is yeah. what Lennon said. Yeah. So the Beatles were a terrific force in the cause of trying to make people, you know, uh, communally love each other in a in the in a profound way so yeah I, I mean i had that experience but everybody had that experience i was just lucky to be part of that particular mm. phenomenon but in cambridge at any rate uh it was true you know there were communes now danny they were criticized as being rich white kids who put together communes in Vermont and New Hampshire and, you know, didn't need to make money and didn't go in the draft because at least nominally they went to universities and got, and got a, well, I guess, a 4F, it was called. Yeah. There were critiques of them uh, and and they were valid in some way because the working, everybody said if the working class yeah, does not join. 4F was if you had flat feet or physically couldn't uh, do it. And then 2S, I think, was the student deferment. Oh, yeah. Okay. And then there was a uh, conscientious objection and there were different tricks one would use to try to get out if one didn't want to serve. Right, right. But but underneath it, the subtext of it, at least in 67, which I know you're very interested in, because I think you're, it, it doesn't have as much... People talk about 68, as you said, and you know, 67 was, in fact, more pivotal because the summer of love was a real thing. All over the world, or at least all over the United States, 
people just were dancing and, 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 and sort of being sweet to each other. And this is in the face of the height of the Vietnam War. You could say it was escapism, but it wasn't. It was, you know, we want to celebrate humanity and our own humanness. And if, if uh, LBJ and then later Nixon, one year later, want to escalate this war, we want no part of it. So, you know, the, the, the radicals were angry and, and expressed that. But the others, we others, wanted to show that you could enjoy life and love people and not be full of divisiveness. Boy, have we come a long way since then, and we got Donald Trump. Um, you know. Well, you know, I think that there was something um, uh, exceptionalist and arrogant in some of the hippie idea that, right. that, that, that didn't have compassion for people that were not, as we called them, heads that they weren't as considered as fully human, as fully enlightened. And, you know, uh, that, that created a, a reaction. People don't like being looked down on and condescended to. There's no question about that. Um, you right. know, and I think the, um, uh, at the same time going on in the country is what's happening in the black community. And it was a time of great ferment, um, and of course, 67 was the year that Martin Luther King publicly came out in opposition to the Vietnam War against the wishes of the majority of the civil rights leaders at the time who felt it was going to take attention away from racism and poverty issues. It was obviously a huge irrevocable break with Lyndon Johnson, who felt betrayed by King after he had done so much for the with the poverty programs and other things like that. And it was really King putting his commitment to nonviolence first, influenced a lot by people like Joan Baez and James Bevel, but mostly by his own conscience. I mean, I was rereading Taylor Branch's uh, trilogy about King, the last book about that period of time recently, and uh, very few people around King wanted him to be against the war in Vietnam. This came really? very, much, very really? much from his own meditations and his own prayers and his own notion of that he couldn't be faithful to the ideal of nonviolence if he didn't oppose the most violent thing that was happening. But as a kid, as somebody who was a teenager, the person who made a bigger impression on me that year was Muhammad Ali. Mm. Because Muhammad Ali was, was such an extraordinary larger-than-life figure, really to me equal to the Beatles as an interna and, and internationally arguably even better known than the because he became a celebrity in the third world in a way that even the Beatles didn't. And there had never been a situation where an athlete of any stature, least of all him, the stature that he had, had become part of a political narrative. I don't think it ever happened before or since at the same level. Jackie Robinson was a big deal, but that was limited to integrating baseball. Jack Johnson was kind of a big deal, but that was pretty much limited to a black guy sleeping with white women and beating white boxers. Ali was making a statement about the central issue in the United States. Uh, and uh, I think it, it, the way the Beatles took meditation into the pop world, to me, Ali took opposition to Vietnam to another level because just more people knew who he was than knew who any of these so-called anti-war people were. And I think he had access to the heart and souls of a lot of kids, including a lot of black kids that even King might not have had at the time. Was he someone that you paid attention to from your vantage point in, in Boston? I did, yeah. And, you know, 
it came to a head when the, uh, the night of the assassination because James Brown performed in Roxbury that night. Oh, the night that Dr. King was. Yeah. Right, yeah. that's a famous. Were you yeah. in Boston then? I was, and uh, it's the I night was, Dr. King was assassinated. Yeah, was I was there, the yeah. and because we were, my crew was everywhere that they they needed to be, even though we weren't a news show. That was too Titanic, and the response to James Brown was phenomenal. Um, Did I don't you think go James. To the concert? Yes. Well, no, I actually didn't go to the concert. I was in another part of of uh, Roxbury, and we we knew the concert was on, but we didn't we didn't cover it. And but what is Roxbury? Is that like a, Roxbury? Is at that time was was a very uh, a very run down uh, part of town where uh, poor whites and and poor blacks lived, and it was it was a bit of a, a it, it, I mean, given the Boston's very beautiful city and has you know suburbs like Belmont that are extraordinarily wealthy, and, and Cambridge itself, and Harvard, and Radcliffe, and Emerson, and Emmanuel, and all of that. It seems like such a boil, a wart, to have this part of town uh, that was just completely run down, just as run down as Detroit or or Harlem at that time, uh, or Newark, and it was it was pretty weird because I didn't know about it much because you know you just didn't. It wasn't that you know. It's just amazing how cable television and the the internet has literally changed everybody's awareness of what's around them. It may not have made the whole thing better, but certainly people are aware of it now. I, most people know how messed up Detroit is. Would they know? Of, would they have known? Well, they, they knew because of the riots in Detroit and Newark. Uh, but you didn't come across it. It was segregated, basically. Mm. You know, there weren't that many African-Americans at Harvard in 1967. Right. There was not. A, right. Exactly. You know, and to get back to what you said before, which is so true, people do not like being counted out. So the hippies, who were, generally speaking, middle and upper, upper middle class uh, white kids who had the luxury of being able to go to college and not having to find a job, uh, they were not that respected by those people in, in, in Boston. And so there was a divide there. And there were very few, I, I, it hurts me to say it, but there were very few African-Americans at those beings. They did not feel it was a part of their life. Mm. They thought it was some some weird outgrowth of, of bourgeois, you know, sort of faux anger. Right. And, and right. people like Julius Lester and, and, and men of his caliber, uh, poets and, and singers, uh, made this quite clear and, and showed us that we weren't, you know, we, we didn't know everything and that we didn't count everybody in. And we were much more sympathetic to, you know, women with flowing hair and miniskirts and guys with headbands and guitars than we were to people who are genuinely suffering in, in various parts of, of, of downtrodden America. So talk a little bit about Julian Lester. I don't know if everybody knows who he was. He was, um, Julian Lester, yeah, I, I said Julius, it's Julian, right? He was a... a no, I think you're right. I think it's Julius was it Julian? Lester. You're I right. get him mixed up with Julius Irving. Um, he, he was a folk singer, a very unusual thing to have an African-American folk singer. He wasn't really a blues singer, and we loved him so much we put him on the show. Unfortunately, the, the, the video is gone, but he was a guest on my show, and I was totally impressed by him. He's a very serious man, uh, not, not a light-hearted person, but someone who sang about social wrongs and rights. And um, he was quite unusual at that time, because even though, uh, you know, bands like the Eiley Brothers and, and, and Hendrix, and so they, they were completely conscious of all of this, they didn't, they weren't folk singers. Uh, 
they were, you know, uh, enhanced blues singers and rhythm blues singers and soul singers. Uh, in Cambridge, uh, it was pr pretty much a segregated scene, you know. Yeah, I mean, we used to go to the Sugar Shack. Clear. It's Julius Lester. It's Julius right. Lester. Yeah, it's Julius, Julius Lester. Many years since I saw him. Yeah. He was a, 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 he scared me at first because he was very serious, you know. But he was serious because he saw that the riots that had happened in Newark and Detroit and so on and Watts uh, were signs of something really, really that was not being attended to by the government or the private sector and, and that racism was rampant. And Boston, by the way, was not much different from Tupelo or, or, or you know, Shreveport. Uh, it was not a particularly enlightened city when it came to integration. Uh, and it was one of the things that struck me when I moved here from England was that, you know, you didn't see that many black people in Harvard Square. And, it, I, you know, it was very puzzling to me at first. And so, you know, you're dead right. Um, some of this euphoria was indeed... Uh, you know, a little bit, you know, unthinking. Well, there but, were you know, some musical connections between yeah. black and white. I mean, you know, on the hippie side, I think of people like Sun Ra, uh, Ornette Coleman, uh, some yeah. of the more experimental jazz artists flowed naturally with some of the psychedelic rock. And then, you know, I don't know what it was like in Boston. In, in San Francisco and New York, where Bill Graham was pr promoting concerts, he made it a practice to have a lot of blues artists as the opening act or the special guest star to some of the rock acts. So Albert King and B.B. King, uh, you know, Slim Harpo, a number of these, uh, Muddy Waters, John Lee Hooker, a number of them um, kind of reached the, the rock uh, audience as artists. That doesn't necessarily mean that the, that the black public that was caught up in R&B and uh, 67 was a time of enormous amount of riots and a lot of American cities uh, did it. But, but there, there were some enclaves of connectivity uh, uh, culturally. Do you think, Danny, because you were maybe not in your 20s yet, but do you think that those same populations, what did they think about the BNs and the Summer of Love? You know, because the ones I interviewed on my show were not impressed. It was like, nah, it doesn't apply to me, man. The being yeah. in San Francisco was overwhelmingly white. There's film footage of it on YouTube, and there's a lot of descriptions of it. I think Dick Gregory was the only African-American speaker. And, and uh, that was particularly notable because uh, the Haight-Ashbury neighborhood of San Francisco was an integrated neighborhood. The Fillmore area was a primarily black area. So there's no question that, that, that the hippie phenomenon was, was mostly white. I spoke to our mutual friend, uh, Jim Farad, who organized a New York BN for Easter of 1967. And God bless him, you know, he's a complicated character, but at that time he was calling himself Jimmy Digger and was aligned with the Diggers. And they were determined not to have any speakers and that it was literally just people being. They didn't want any stage. They didn't want any separation between uh, people that were considered performers and people that were considered audience. And that's the way they did it. And all of the posters that were circulated and the flyers around the city, and I think they had 50,000 made up, were in both Spanish and English because they wanted to have a special outreach to the Puerto Rican community. And there were apparently a lot of Puerto Ricans at the, uh, at the New York Easter Bean. Um, but in general, 
you know, there's just no question about it that if you look at the faces, uh, although although blacks were welcomed as performers and in the audience, uh, the culture was not uh, speaking to them with the same level of intensity as uh, as what the you know Marvin Gaye was and the R and B world and the emergence of the Black Panthers. 1967 is also the year that Huey Newton uh, is arrested in Oakland and becomes the Free Huey movement becomes kind mm. of a worldwide uh, uh, cause. Um, so it did not um, solve the racial problem, although I would argue that it certainly didn't make it any worse. Um, wh- what was the, um, the role of media? Because my feeling about that period was that these FM radio stations uh, had a unique multiplier effect uh, for this sense of, of community because FM radio by the seventies becomes a big business. Uh, they're catering to advertisers. They're catering to the, uh, you know, uh, owners who are these very, very wealthy corporations. But in the, in, for a brief period, uh, these were um, stations that did not have much economic value. They were, they were uh, unused most of the time uh, only for classical music or something like that. And there was about a year or two, where underground radio really was part of the hippie world before it became commercialized. And Boston is famous for being second to San Francisco, one of the earliest places where that happened on, on WBCN. Was, yeah. that, was that very much part of your sense of community? Oh, God, yes. I just would listen to it constantly driving at home, everywhere. I would go to the station a lot. I knew Norm Weiner and Danny Schechter, of course, and, and Peter Wolf. Peter Wolf was a disc jockey uh, on, on BCN and was uh, particularly special because anytime you tuned into the Wolf, the Wolfer, uh, you know, he would have Little Richard on there or John Lee Hooker or, or maybe even Muddy Waters. He had the great blues musicians and rhythm and blues. They were guests on Peter's show. And for those of you who don't know, Peter Wolf is the, later became the lead singer of the Jay Giles Band. He was white. He had a uh, half-Jewish, Jewish mother uh, from the Bronx. But on uh, those who heard him for the first time on the radio almost invariably thought he was black. I know when Van Morrison met him for the first time, he was shocked to see that Peter was a white guy. Yes, yes, I remember this whole thing because he sounded, you know, he had that sort of that kind of brogue. But Peter was very incredible in the sense that he introduced, along with, you know, Charles Laquadier and other names that probably don't mean that much to people now. But at the time, there were big stars in Cambridge in a way that no one had ever been a star before. And they just played whatever they wanted. So they would go from the early blues Fleetwood Mac to Fairport Convention to Joan Baez to maybe a piece of classical music, to some Ornette Coleman, back to the Beatles. It was like that. It was freeform radio. And we all completely loved it. And they were, you know, there's a movie coming out this year, I believe, it's, it's almost finished, I think, about the phenomenon of WBCN, because it, re- it really did reflect not just the hippie movement, but the, the entire youth movement in, in New England. And the, the quality of the, of the interstice, you know, the way people talked... The, what they talked about was free form. It was like, uh, we thought it was going to be like that forever and AM radio would, would die. And, and, and AM radio had Arnie Ginsberg, who even AM radio was infected by this because Arnie, Woo Woo Ginsberg, 
was also a free-form guy, even though he was on an AM format. So he was more likely to be playing Dusty Springfield and the Beach Boys. But it infected everybody, and it was a big part of my life. I loved BCN. It was it was just my blood running through my veins. And, you know, it was very carefully tended. And then eventually, like everything else, it, 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 it had to go the way of all things. But uh, Norm Weiner, who you know, uh, was program director, and, and they were just insistent upon reflecting the consciousness and, and, and sensibility of what was going on in the world. There was no attempt to just talk about, oh, well, the latest single from, you know, from Savoy Brown. It wasn't like that. They were just as likely to be talking about, uh, you know, a protest that was going to happen in, uh, on the MIT campus uh, that the following day. Go to it. Check it out. Check it out. I'll be there. You know, that kind of thing. So phenomenal. Really. So I know you're a great lover of the blues and you're a great lover of British rock of the so-called English invasion, the Beatles, the Stones, uh, Spencer Davis group and many others. Uh, but in 1967, this music is also coming from San Francisco. Uh, the Jefferson Airplane put out some realistic pillow at the beginning of the year, White Rabbit and Somebody to Love Become Hits. Uh, Hendrix comes out, Janis Joplin comes out, The Dead comes out, The Doors come out. Um, did you have a resistance to West Coast music or did it flow into the culture that had been defined previously uh, by the Beatles and the Stones and Dylan? No, I, I loved it. I thought it was so different and so interesting. So Grace Slick or, or, or Jerry Garcia, or, um, you know, those, those people were just a, a, an amazing counterpoint. Because in fact, the truth be told, they were far more political than the British bands. You know, the British bands were blues fanatics and, and worked on that. It was only later, maybe, that, that, that people like Eric Clapton, you know, had another kind of persona. But really, it was the, the quality of the music coming from England, which was so great. But, you know, we all loved The Doors, and, of course, they were Southern California. And yeah. The Doors were, were definitely in the same league as, as, as those other, you know, more iconic or actually more commercially successful bands. We, we all loved them on the East Coast then, and I, I, I was, you know, just knocked out by, particularly by the airplane, and and even the Beach Boys, you know, they they had an influence upon everybody, and it was just wonderful to be in the middle of it. And then in New York, of course, you had the Velvet Underground, and in Boston, yeah, their first had, album came out in '67 as well. Did it? Okay. Yeah. okay. And they were in Boston all the time because they had a fevered audience there, of which I was one. Mm -hmm. I never missed. I think I never missed a Velvet's concert. So I saw Lou Reed about 30 times, and they were always stunning. I mean, they just, the place, you know, it wasn't a raving, shouting thing. It was a quiet thing because they were just so cerebral and amazing. And, of course, they represented the dark side in many ways, heroin and waiting for the man and all that was very different from, you know, all you need is love. But the whole thing together made for a microcosm of the movement. The music was so rich and diverse. And I loved California music myself. As we're doing this uh, recording, uh, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction was a few days ago. Uh, you know, these things tend to take about a month to go up online. And Steve Miller was inducted. And, and the Steve Miller Blues Band was a San Francisco band. They played at the Bean in 1967. He later went on to have this string of pop hits for which he's better known. Uh, like the Joker and take the money and run, but but um, when he uh, did his press uh, conference, uh, you know the interview with the press after being inducted, he complained about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame among other reasons for not inducting enough women, and one of the things, in addition to the fact that the '60s hippie culture was mostly white, 
I think one has to say was also mostly male. The Velvet Underground yeah. did have Nico. Yeah. The Jefferson Airplane did I mean, have Grace Slick, uh, Janice, Janice Joan Byers. And Janice Joplin was there. And Joan uh, you know, Byers was after there. After that. Judy Collins was making scratch. very relevant bit, records. Right? I mean, I, I know there were others, uh, but Bonnie Ray didn't, didn't come to the 70s. And, yeah. you know. Judy uh, Collins was an important doctor. She yeah. introduced songwriters like Joni Mitchell and Leonard Cohen. But we've pretty much exhausted the list compared to about 50 guys that we can mention. Yeah. The Beatles, the Stones, Cream, you, you know, the Yardbirds, uh, Hendrix, and, and so on and so forth. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's certainly one of the things that may have limited the ultimate save the world impact of, 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 of the culture was, was the, the male whiteness of it. Yeah, and and the the sort of there was kind of a bit of a knee jerk, you know, sort of attitudinalism. I mean, I, I remember seeing Steppenwolf uh, perform, and they were it was a phenomenon to see them perform because they were so scary. I mean, you know, they just were. You you, you didn't want to be on the stage with them or anywhere near. It was incredible to watch them. It was just a a, a, a sort of a, a burning anger of uh, the front of rock, but at the same time. I remember one time I, I, I emceed a concert with Steppenwolf and Spirit. And Spirit is a long forgotten band, I think, but it was a guy called Randy California. Yeah. And they were just amazing. So there were bands on the periphery of this that weren't hugely successful, like Moby Grape, for instance, and Blue Cheer. You know, I don't, you know far more than I do about this, Danny, but it didn't seem to me like they were selling that many records. But they were all had this charisma. They all seemed, they were just sort of like the hippie movement. There was the music movement. And they just didn't seem like normal people. Yeah, you know? I was a fan also of Country Joe and the Fish. Yeah. And, yeah. of course, Country Joe and the Fish were so named based on a quote from, uh, uh, I think, Lennon and Mao Tung saying that the revolutionary is a fish who swims in the ocean of the people. You know. Really? Yes, that's, that's why they were called the fish. Damn. They were openly Marxist. And um, they started as a purely political Berkeley group, and then they took acid and they saw what was happening with the airplane. And, you know, the guitar playing, I think the name of the guitar player was Barry Melton. He's not remembered as a great guitar player in any of the list of great guitar players that magazines put out. But uh, I re-listened to the first Country Joe and the Fish album recently, and his guitar playing was fantastic. It was very much on a par with what Yorma was doing in the airplane and in, 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 in my view. Um, so uh, these were underground artists. You didn't have to have a hit single to get an audience because of these FM radio stations that you talked about. And the ability for them to be weirder and less uh, structured than, than bands that had to have pop singles, uh, uh, you know, uh, was, 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 was a big thing. Another thing that happened in 1967, which I didn't really pay much attention to at the time, uh, but... You know, we have to acknowledge as part of the history that we live in today was was in the Middle East. It was the year of the Six Day War. Mm. Um, I my name is Goldberg. Your name is Silver. We both were born Jewish. Uh, we both embraced Eastern religions more than, you know, the, the religion that we were supposedly born into. Um, it, it's it's uh, were, did that penetrate into your world as a big deal? It didn't into mine. I knew what happened. And I was glad Israel wasn't wiped out, but it was not a big game changer for me or my hippie friends, but it obviously was a huge game changer for the world. 
No, it actually, I mean, if, if I remember rightly, which is questionable, uh, I don't think it did. I mean, it seemed far, far away. I mean, I think we can't emphasize enough how small this cliche, but the global village became at a certain point. But at that time, it was still struggling with that. It, you know, you got a little bit of 60 millimeter film footage in, from, from the West Bank or from Jerusalem, but it wasn't like somebody was standing there, even with video. There was no, there was no I mean, very little remote video because you had to carry these gigantic cameras everywhere. So th the technology, and interestingly enough, I just might want to pay tribute to someone that I deeply admire, which is Rick, Ricky Leacock, who was at MIT and was a dear friend of mine. And Leacock, Penny Baker were definitely the very first 16 millimeter uh, documentarians, and and really, really did a great job with the counterculture. And they did. Well, you know, uh, uh, don't look back. The famous yes. Bob Dylan documentary. Yes. They did Monterey Pop. And, yes. Uh, so those yes. were two seminal '60s documentaries, among many others. You they know, covered and, the Beatles too. The Maisel Brothers were also part of that. Yeah. But but Leacock actually invented the 16 millimeter camera as we know it uh, by making you know magazines, film magazines, smaller and and actually with more film in them. And they were very much a part of the of the early communication of of these new thoughts and styles and attitudes political positions they they were very important i, I mean no uh, albert mazel died recently and david died some years ago penny baker's still alive ricky's gone but i cannot i mean having been part of that medium they were to me the the absolute front of the medium not walter cronkite i mean i'm not saying anything against walter cronkite and what he did well his contribution to any that dreadful war cannot be cannot be overestimated but Underneath that, there was a boiling media that had no outlet, virtually no outlet. Mm -hmm. And so it's amazing that we all managed to see Don't Look Back or Eat the Document or any of those great Pete Pennybaker films. And these guys were just as much part of the counterculture as were Frank Zappa. Even though they were less flamboyant, they didn't necessarily have long hair, they didn't necessarily take acid, they were just documenting it. And uh, I recommend to people to look at their films. And what is your feeling about the people in the mainstream media who are trying to come to grips with this? I think of the Smother Brothers show, which premiered yeah. in 67. I think of Dick Cavett. Uh, there was always, I always had these mixed feelings. On one hand, there was a certain um, uh, plastic quality to the way they were presented, which the networks demanded. And on the other hand, for millions and millions of kids, these shows were the doorway through which they first encountered yeah. some of the people we're yeah. talking about. Uh, as someone who is working in public television with a, a high degree of freedom that the Smothers Brothers and Cabot didn't have, what, what did you make of them? Did you, did you look at I, them I, as sellouts or as people that were contributing something or somewhere in between? Well, I was pretty snotty at the beginning because I thought this doesn't represent anything. But I did actually meet Tommy Smothers. He came to Boston once and watched my show, and he was a delight mm. and was as radical a person as you could meet. And he did his, him and, and his brother did everything they could to, to get things on their show that, and, and made little, you know, jokes and stuff. So that they were there. Gene Roddenberry and Star Trek, um, you know, I did a documentary about them in, in later in 1970 for PBS. And Roddenberry and, and the story editors told me that every single Star Trek show, every one of them, had an anti-Vietnam subtext. And they weren't lying. They said that they couldn't do it out, out, out there, but Roddenberry was very, very against the war. So Star Trek actually had a, a, an undercurrent, 
which mm. was noticeable if they told you this. And, you know, Tommy Smothers and his brother did great work. Cavett was a bit, he was a bit from the, he was kind of a straddler. You know, he was a writer for Carson. Uh, he didn't look like any of those people. But he did have Hendrix on the show. He had Janice on the show. He had those yeah. people. They were good. Um, Laugh-In was, was, was really a homogenization and had nothing to do with anything, really. Uh, you know, yeah, Cronkite stood out. Um, he did stand out because he, you could tell that he wasn't, uh, in his later time at CBS, he wasn't too happy with what was going on and, and spoke about the protests and spoke about the, the lies. So we were all happy about that. You know, it, it was touch and go. I mean, I was more interested in Jean-Luc Godard and the European filmmakers because mm. they seemed to be touching, not so much upon the political scene, but upon the psychological changes that yeah, were the taking. Yeah, the inner poetic truth right. of the moment. Right, yeah. right. Um, uh, but, you know, uh, occasionally you would see something really weird. You'd see Zappa on some show, you know, and it was really bizarre because always, always, when rock and rollers or satirists were on those shows, they were always very contrary. So it was very difficult for a Dick Cavett to actually talk to them because they were sort of like they didn't really want to talk to people like him. And, you know, that was a part of it, too. Yeah, I mean, their, brand, was, yeah their brand yeah. kind of required hostility. Yeah. Now, yeah. just tell the listeners before we end, I, I had the good luck to watch some of the um, kinescopes or videos, whatever you call them, of some of the shows you did in 67. And I was very much taken with the fact that you did one with William F. Buckley, who became kind of the one of the leading thought leaders of the new right uh, that led to the uh, presidency of Ronald Reagan, that led to the conservative uh, values being so politically powerful. He had this show called Firing Line where he would confront the left and the counterculture in, a, in an eloquent, clever, and sometimes supercilious way. And yet you had a very um, civilized experience with him on your show. I and, did. And yeah. what do you make of that? And, and uh, uh, what's the lesson to be drawn from that? And, and tell well, us about my, it. Thank you for bringing that up. I, I, you know, my personal lesson was that I had prejudices and, and that I, you know, they were overcome by someone's individual persona. Mm. Uh, I, when I did the, the show with William Buckley, Firing Line and my show uh, started at the same time. So NET, which is a precursor to PBS, thought it would be a good idea if he came to Boston and was on my show. Uh, I had a terrible flu. Uh, I, I was ill. I was in London the morning of the show and flew back with this flu and was in terrible condition. And when Buckley had his private moment with me in the green room, he said to me, you're ill, you're sick. We shouldn't do this. I said, no, 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 we've got to do it. We've got to do it. We've got to do it. And he was extraordinarily compassionate mm. and was a real human being. Argued with me a lot about the Beatles and about Leary and Ginsburg, but then in his column wrote about what happened. Because what actually happened was that um, I said to him something about the Beatles, and he said, "Oh, you know, I, I don't, I don't really value them. You know, I don't think that they're so wonderful." And I was sort of like, "Well, you're out of it, you know." And then about a month later, he wrote a column saying, "A young English friend of mine pointed out to me that the Beatles were a significant political and cultural force, and I treated him with utter contempt." This uh, column is there to apologize to him and to all the others. Uh, my younger relatives uh, made me listen uh, to Revolver, and I got it. And I, I, I apologize, and I think that the Beatles indeed have talent. And, you know, it made me understand <laughs> that right-wingers, even ones like him. You see, I mean, 
Buckley was interesting because he he was a he was a hater of the John Birch Society, which was at the extreme right of the of the Republican Party at that time. He wasn't a supporter of them. He was a supporter of Reagan and believed that Reagan would be president and told me so in yeah. great detail several times. Uh, and that was '67. Yeah, 13 years before the, the yes. 1980 election. Well, I wish Reagan had not been president. Me too. <laughs> but I'm very glad that uh, you and I get to talk about it. Uh, and uh, I still think. There are mysteries and lessons from the 60s yet to be unraveled. And maybe we can do another one of these someday, maybe in 2017. Thank you, my my dear, dear, dear friend. Thank you, Danny. Love you, man. God bless. Yeah.